Please be continuing to pray for our children and the teachers as they communicate God's word, and that they would do that clearly, and that God would open their hearts. My name is Pastor Nate. I think I forgot to say my name when I was up here, but um, I'm one of the pastors here. And today is a busy day of a family celebration day, and it's a good day to be able to come together and be reminded ultimately of God's grace that he so lavishly poured out on our lives through his son Jesus Christ, but a chance we have to just come together, reflect upon that, and then build up on that with uh, celebrating the life, a new life, but also uh, celebrating a new family part of our church family here. So we're continuing to celebrate and pray, and we'll have more after I'm done preaching uh, for the Wood family as well. But if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to, uh, I almost said Psalm, uh, Acts. Acts 8 is where we're in today. Acts 8 verses 1 to 8. And as a quick little reminder of what has happened so far, Stephen is dead. Stephen is the first martyr that has died. He is killed for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of that, what we see right now is the outcome of that. The gospel has been received with anger, hostility even. And it is here that we see persecution driving the next phase of the church's mission to bring the message about Jesus to the nations. Just as Jesus said it would happen, as a reminder. But if you have your Bibles with you, we're in Acts chapter 8. We'll be reading from verses 1 to 8 together, starting at 1b, because we did 1a last week. And there arose on that day, as the word of the Lord says, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those, in verse 4, who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. But when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this chance to continue to worship you. As we were just reminded in this video, you are worthy of our worship. You deserve our worship. So Lord, I pray that as we listen to your word preached, that we would continue to worship you in our listening. That as I preach your word, that I would worship you in that. And Lord, I want to preach so that you're glorified and speak of your name and praise your name. And Lord, I can't do this on my own, so will you not make this turn out well? So by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with the necessary power and appropriate affection. God, I pray that you would use this sermon to bring joy to your name, glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. In verses 1 to verses 3 of chapter 8, we see a great persecution for the simple reason that Jesus is preached. 
Stephen's stoning is the catalyst for a great persecution. In our pre-service prayer time, someone actually used this word catalyst that Noah would be used as a catalyst to grow God's kingdom, that God would use Noah to grow his kingdom. And I'm thinking catalyst, persecution. That's how I was thinking it. But Stephen's stoning is the catalyst of a great persecution, as it says right there in verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. So let's define what persecution is first, because I think that word has been thrown around a lot, especially over the last couple of years. It's a systematic organization, an organized program to oppress and harass a people. In this case, for, for beliefs. It's an organized movement to try and stop the message about Jesus and those who are preaching it. And for the most part, we have to remember that the church at this time was localized in the city called Jerusalem in the Middle East. And we don't know how long after Jesus was killed on the cross and that he rose again and ascended into heaven that this exactly is happening, but it's here. And as I was reflecting upon persecution, I was reminded of an experiment that teachers often do with their students. It's this idea of taking water, and you uh, put some pepper on it. You know, the pepper floats on the top because of density and all those other things I don't quite understand anymore. But if you take your finger and put it in the water, nothing happens. But if you take your finger and rub some dish soap on there and you dunk it into the water again, the salt and the pepper begin to scatter like crazy. Now, this is an experiment about surface tension. That I know because I Googled it. <laughs> but now apply what is happening to, the, to, the ki- to, to, to what is happening right here. Persecution is, is doing much the same with the church. The water is Jerusalem and the pepper are believers and the soap is the persecution and Saul is the finger. And as Saul begins to persecute the church, the church scatters. And as the persecutions press down on the church in Jerusalem, we see that they all scatter throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. So they leave a church of a few thousand people. They're saying, wow, it's getting too hot in here. We're out of here. We leave. Which I think is a rebuke to me as well, because I think sometimes in my stubbornness, I think, shouldn't we stand strong? But here the church goes as part of God's sovereign plan. So they move, and they begin to move to other cities and regions. And we need to remember something that is vital to the gospel when we look at this. Just as much as Jesus' death on the cross was not an accident, this isn't either. This is all part of God's providence and his sovereign plan. There is a design and purpose to what is happening right here, right now. Let's remember what Jesus commanded his disciples, his very last words in Acts 1 verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is happening, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So everyone scatters, except for the hardcore apostles who stay and continue to lead the church in Jerusalem. But in verse 2, we see that devout men come and they begin to bury, take Stephen's now lifeless body. And they take his body and they bury him. 
Bury the body of the man who was stoned for preaching the message about Jesus Christ. The man who Saul looked on approvingly as the horde uh, threw stones at him. They take them and bury him. And they made a great limitations over him. As these men bury Stephen, they beat their chest and mourn and wail. What does it mean to lament? I, I love laments because they teach me how to cry out to God. And here we see people lamenting. And the book of Psalm has many laments, songs that are written to laments. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. It's a giant lament. And I think it's something that we all, we see all over the Bible, yet we struggle to embrace with the church, especially in our Western culture. We have this like stiff upper lip idea. Lament is expressing sorrow and grief over travesty, injustice, sickness, death or other brokenness that is in this world. This includes the, the, the ramifications of sin within a, a fallen world and the emotional response to those sins and, and how they affect me. If someone sins against me, I lament, I cry out for God, who is the God of justice, that he may do something. Lament includes that emotional side of the sin that is affecting you. But what do they do? They, they lament over the injustice of what has happened, that Stephen has just died for being faithful to Jesus by the word, uh, by preaching of the word. He's been sentenced to death by essentially what is called the kangaroo court. But does lament leave us in a state of mourning? Christian lament is different. And you see this even in this text. Because just as much as lament is to have sadness, it means to have hope. Even though the church was facing an uncertain future, they didn't know what was happening. All of a sudden, they were like chilling in the temple, and then suddenly their best friend is being stoned. They didn't know what was happening, but they were resolved to hope in God. To lament means to come to God with the rightly ordered emotions and resolve to trust God even in the hardest of times, knowing that I may not know what the future holds, but God does. And he will use it for my good and his glory. So they lament. See, lament is a two-sided coin of sorrow and resting in Christ. There's deep agony over what is happening in our world or what may happen to you, but there's never no hope for those who are in Christ.
and they would say that to one another. The early church would cry this out or even greet each other with it. It was a reminder to them that in the midst of persecution, there was always hope. They were able to cry this because their hope was anchored in the victorious Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for their sins and rose again, who's standing at the right hand of the Father and will one day return. And that's what it means to lament. Life is hard, but Jesus' worth is greater. And we see the example here. This is why the early church went on continuing to preach Christ even in the midst of a great persecution. And God used that to give hope to the people like the outcasts of Samaria. For those who are in Christ, we cry out with a deep resolve to trust God in all his promises, waiting with the groaning for the coming resurrection. As Romans 8.23 says, knowing that there is hope for those who are saved. We know that, as Romans 8.28 says, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The Christian learned what it meant to lament during this time. And the Christian's lament knows, knowing that it is in this quiet darkness of life that God is still with them. So verse 3 comes along and we see that Paul was ravaging the church. Ravaging is a very strong word. No longer is he looking on approving, you know, checking in coats, making sure everyone gets their coat. Now he's an active participant in what is happening. Not only is he an active participant, but we would use the same word, he's been radicalized. Now he's an active participant in the persecution of the church. Now he's leading the charge. Now he's the one that, as we see, is banging on the doors and dragging people out of their homes. Paul isn't holding back as that word ravage means. This isn't about some sort of harassment, like he's throwing little stones at somebody and teasing somebody. He's seeking to destroy something, and he's doing everything within his power to do that. How? By dragging off men and women and putting them in the prison as the church gathered in homes together where her influence was a, a joyful and caring context that continued to grow. It was being taken apart by Paul as he banged on those doors and dragged them off into prison. So a great persecution arises for the preaching of the message about Jesus. And Saul is in the middle and even though Saul had the intentions to stop the spread about the message of God, about the message about Jesus, God had another plan. As we see later in verses 4, the preaching of the gospel, of, the preaching of Jesus grew because of the persecution. But what does someone who loves Jesus do? If I love Jesus, what do I do? What do people who love their neighbors and, and love God with all their hearts and with all their soul do? Do you keep that love to yourself? Do you keep a message about hope in a hopeless world to yourself? Verse 4 says, Now those who are scattering, scattered sorry, went about preaching the word. Preaching the word. 
So this is kind of like the second generation, right? These aren't the people that necessarily saw Jesus firsthand, but these are the people that God called to himself in the evangelism of the apostles. They aren't the people who saw him necessarily, but they're the people who are heralds of good, of good news. It's understandable to want to leave hardships, right? In fact, when you really think about it, you need to get some psychological help if you're going to keep your hand in a fire right? You take your hand away. That's natural. And when we start mocking people for doing what is natural, I don't know. Now, some people are gifted to, to stick around, like the apostles, but some people leave. And as they leave, as they scatter, they continue to do the thing that they've been called to do to be faithful in that, and as to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, wherever they go, whatever they do. Acts 11 verse 19 says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that rose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. They continued to preach. And I'm reminded of a quote by one of our early church fathers called Tertullian, and he said it this way, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The word of the Lord continued to increase. The Christians were acting like that game whack-a-mole, which is probably the most frustrating game in the world. But every time they would hit a mole, another mole would pop up, right? And maybe another one, another one. Every time Paul and the religious leaders at the time, every time they thought they got that church, another church would pop up. So as the Christians ran for their lives, they were preaching the word. The word there is euangelion. It means to be a herald of the good news, to continue to proclaim it. And they proclaimed that good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ died and rose again, that Jesus Christ, the long-promised Messiah who was born of the Virgin Mary and lived a sinless life, he died. And Jesus Christ, both being both fully human and fully man, was put to death on a Roman cross and laid in a tomb according to God's plan. And he died for, he died in place of. The death of Jesus was substitutionary. He was dying in the place of someone else. He was dying in the place of his people for our sins. The death that Jesus died was for all those who repent who turn from their sin and believe, who have faith and rest in Jesus alone to save them. Because we're all born with sinful natures. And we all sinned against God in real time. I guarantee you there's not one person here who didn't do something on the way to church, especially if you got cut off or got stopped by a train. God told the first man, Adam, that if he sinned, he would surely die, and the penalty for sin is death. The message of the gospel is that Jesus came to die in our place. He took our sins on himself and suffered the punishment of God in our place. But God didn't leave Jesus dead because he was raised from the dead. God's giant stamp of approval on what Jesus did for us was raising him from the dead. Jesus was rescued on the third day and appeared to many of his disciples, even to prove it. 
But being raised from the dead, God made clear that the full price for sin had been paid by his son, Jesus Christ. So think about it this way. Maybe the church at the time, as they began to scatter, were walking along the road, and, and someone said, hey, you sound like you're from, you're not from around here, you've got a little bit of an accent going on. You sound like maybe you're from Jerusalem. Like, what brings you all the way out here? And then they would start to recount the message about Jesus, wherever they went, declaring who he is, what he has done. They bore witness about the good news of Jesus Christ. As they continued to preach the gospel, and as they preached the gospel, the people who were hearing were left with a choice because the gospel isn't just information, but it is a call to obedience. We are supposed to do something when we hear good news. We are to repent. We're to agree with God that we are sinners, renounce our sin, and turn our back on the old way of life and to believe. We, we put our confidence in the person of Jesus as our substitute whose death was enough to rescue us from the hell we deserved. So look, we look at this word preach, right? And you're going, ah, that's not me. Pastor, that's you. I'm not called to preach. Not everyone is gifted or equipped or called to preach in some sort of formal way. I get it. But everyone who is a Christian is called to bear witness about Jesus. And that's what they did. They bore witness about what Jesus had done. And that's what the word preach actually means to herald the good news. The word of the Lord continued to increase as the church scattered preaching the message about Jesus. But why would the church continue to preach the gospel to anyone who would hear even as they were running for their lives? Right? The message that they're running with and speaking is the same message that got Stephen killed. So I don't know. If you don't think of it as valuable, you're probably not going to say anything because it's a treasure worth knowing. This is Philippians 3, 7 and 9. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. If you are in Christ, you, have, you are justified it is because of Jesus that you can say with such a great joy that is found in humility that Jesus is our righteousness. It is not the trusting in the many things you can do or the many things that you don't do that saves you. It is Jesus Christ alone. It is the finished work of Jesus on the cross that believing this is sufficient to save you. And doesn't that make Jesus a treasure worth giving up everything for? 
Isn't he a treasure worth sharing in all circumstances because of what he has done for you? It's because of what Jesus has done that we can know his great longing to have all those who are in Christ with him. And when you are finally with him, Revelation 21.4, and he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. Never again will you know any kind of separation from him, as Romans 8.39 says, for you will always be with the Lord, as 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says. For all who are in Christ, you have this because Jesus paid for it all, and it costs you everything you own in this age to have it, but it is such a small payment for such an everlasting, never-ending treasure that only a fool would pass it up. So we can pray that we may know Jesus better and better and more and more every day, that we may know him so much more that it spills over into our life of living for his glory, and we can pray that Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would empower us to love holiness and and people and the communities he's placed us in more and more. And we can pray because of, of the treasure of knowing Jesus to have his heart, to cry as he cries, to have the compassion that he has compassion for, for all the broken people and places in this world, in this city. And we can pray that we would have a growing willingness to suffer for Jesus. Jesus, help us to treasure you more so that everything else that glitters in this world would fade in comparison to you. Persecution for the believer is hard, but it brings joy. Why? Because it makes me treasure Christ more. See, the acts that we see here, the persecution that begins to happen, is like Paul taking a can, a giant can of gasoline, and throwing it on an already burning fire. Have you ever seen that happen? I've been a kid. If you're a kid and haven't put gasoline on the fire, I don't, I don't know if I believe you. My kids haven't, though, because um, I did. So those things are locked away. <laughs> but it acts like a fire. The more we see that there is no greater treasure than Jesus, the more we will desire to share him with others. In verse 5, we're now introduced to this man named Philip, which we've been introduced to before because in Acts 7, we see, sorry, in Acts 6, we see that he's a man of good repute, full of, of the Spirit and of wisdom, and he goes to the city of Samaria and proclaims to them the Christ. And Samaria is a city that was really not liked by the Jews. They were considered to be unclean, they were considered half breeds which meant that they were even lower than a Gentile. And the Jews thought of them as people who had no part in God's promises. But here is an amazing act of God's grace. Right? Here we see how the gospel reaches Samaria, fulfilling what Acts 1 verse 8 says, and how the gospel crossed the first cross-cultural barrier. You think that culture can stop the word of God from increasing? 
The gospel is like a tank and culture is like a shrub. It doesn't even stop it. It crashes through that barrier just like it crashes through any other barrier as it reaches all those God intends to reach. The persecution that is scattering the disciples is actually working as a mobilization force for the gospel. Saul wants to destroy what he thought was a heresy, but instead God uses him as a catalyst to spread the gospel to many cities. And now Philip, the evangelist, is in a city that's been rejected by the Jewish people, is now preaching Christ. Saul is trying to crush the gospel, but he ends up fueling the gospel advance. And the word of the Lord continues to increase. And Philip preached Christ to the Samaritans, carrying the gospel across the land and religious and racial divides. And this is important, because I think in our culture, and this is why ultimately I thought Acts would be important for us as a church to walk through, because I think we feel discouraged sometimes that we, the world is winning, that the gospel is losing ground. And we have 2,000 years of history to say that that's not true. We have the word of God that in the midst of the greatest persecution, the word of God continued to increase, that God is still calling people to himself, that there are still baptisms happening in the church, that people are still joining with the church. I am encouraged every time, every day I'm encouraged as I reflect upon how people in this church, the members of this church, are faithfully preaching the gospel to their neighbors. It could be through a Bible study. It could be through a simple conversation in the elevator, whatever it may be. Because the word of the Lord continues to increase. There is no power that can stop the gospel. It's a mistake to think that there's something greater than God's gospel. The persecution that the Christians are facing drives them to all Judea and Samaria where they accept the gospel gladly. So with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. This has to be an act of the Spirit, by the way, because I am a preacher and I can see all of you right? They're all paying attention with one accord. The work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of these people opens up their ears and opens up their heart to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts us of our need. And they saw these signs and their wonders, and these aren't independent signs, but point to the message that Philip is speaking of, This was a tangible demonstration of what Jesus Christ had done for them. The lame are walking. The paralyzed are walking. Evil spirits are coming out. And this is all a foretaste of what Christ will do when he returns and makes things all new again. And the outcome in verse 8 is that there was much joy in that city. Do you see the contrast between Jerusalem, who was quote-unquote, the people of God in Samaria, who is less than? How did the people in Jerusalem respond to the gospel? They stoned the guy. 
And this is the joy that Jesus speaks about in John 16, verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. What brought the gospel to Samaria was horrendous. I don't ever take lightly the people who died for the sake of Christ. I, I, I applaud that. It was terrible. Many men and women suffered for Jesus. Taken from their homes, taken from their families, some of them were killed. And Luke shows us a pattern, though, that when there's rejection in one place, it becomes an opportunity for people somewhere else to receive the gospel. So hear this, no matter how evil things may get, God and the gospel aren't defeated by human opposition. God even uses evil done to Stephen to bring an increase of his word and a wider impact so that even more people may know the joy of their salvation. And what those men and women went through brought blessings to others. I'm sure that those people were lamenting about the loss of home and family and whatever else it may be. Maybe they lost their lives but as they bask in the wonder of being in the presence of the one who saved them, I'm pretty sure they don't care about their house anymore. You would have to praise God for every soul that was lost is now found. That's something I think about regularly. I was thinking about that today, this morning, as I was working out. My God, if one, it's worth it all, if just one would know the joy of the salvation that I know. It's worth it all. So Jesus prays in John 17 when he said, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That joy is now coming to these people in Samaria. Why would there be much joy in this city? Was it because of all the works and the wonders? Oh, I'm sure that that played a role. But what did those works and wonders show? These were people that were excluded from the promises of God, but now through Christ, they are no longer half-breeds. No longer are they broken. No longer are they slaves to sin. They are now free in Christ, heirs with Christ. Their joy came from knowing that no longer were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Or... Colossians 1, he was delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, joy comes the more we understand what God has saved us from and brought us to. Joy comes the more we treasure Christ as the, the treasure worth selling everything for to obtain it. Not that we can obtain it on our own. It is only by grace that we are saved. The Samaritans had a foretaste of heaven and that brought a sense of unimaginable joy. So Jesus continues to build his church. In London, God is growing his church. Let us not forget these things. 
Let us continue to pray that we would treasure God amongst, above all things. Again, as Tertullian said in his Apologia, he said, kill us, torture us, con- condemn us, grind us to dust. dust. This is great, right? Your injustice is proof that we are innocent. The oftener, oftener we are mowed down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of, Christ- of Christians is seed. How could God use something so evil as the murder of Stephen and the persecution of his church to do something so great? It pushed the people out to the nations. God strengthened his people to continue to preach that Christ died for their sins and rose again. God uses the preaching of his word and the message about Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit to start calling people to himself as he convicts them of sin and the need of a Savior. And the word of the Lord continues to increase, bringing joy to those who had no joy. Why? Because the love of God that the church knew motivated them to continue bearing witness about Jesus. God's people continued to preach the gospel and suffer for the gospel. They put, on, uh, put proof that the treasure of Jesus is greater than anything else. That to give up everything is worth it for knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Sometimes we get so stuck on the temporal things, right? Like how often do we think further than a week? I need to go, this is, this is shopaholicism, by the way, right? Like, I can't save my money. I need to go buy it right now. Right? This mentality of instant gratification. But in Christ, we have something that's so much greater. Whatever we go through for this 80 to 90 years, I was going to say 75, but people, that's like children still for some. 80, 90 years old, whatever happens is worth it for Christ. If knowing Christ for eternity... The love of God that we have experienced pushes us out to bear witness about Jesus. Why? Well, because Jesus told you to. But let me talk about a little bit more why. It's not just about duty. Duty only brings us so far. How about love? Because it's here that I learn that 1 John 4, 10 says... And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or it's here that I learn, like in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. That's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Or I think of Ephesians 2, 4, but God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. See, the love of God that we have experienced motivates us to bear witness about Jesus. In Christ, you and I are, have all experienced this. Why would we not want those who don't know this to know this? So this begs the question. God is calling you to spread the message about Jesus. Are you? We have so been greatly blessed by bringing on a new pastor with Pastor Chris, who's gifted with evangelism, and he's coming on as an elder here at Knollwood. 
He has a great heart for it. He does things that are, I think, are, we've talked about this. I'm like, you're crazy. <laughs> and I look forward to what God will do in London. And he'll be working, and Chris will be working with community groups and discipleship groups and along with evangelism. But that doesn't mean you and I are off the hook from what we've been called to do. We're still called to go preach Christ wherever we go. And yes, we're told to by Jesus. But should we not want to because we know more and more of what he has done for us, that we've been saved by his amazing grace? Do I not want my people around me to know this? Does your heart break for the things that Christ's heart breaks for? Because if you look at your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, all you can see is that person is not going to heaven. They're going to hell outside of Jesus. And it's only through the gospel and hearing the gospel that God will convict. Now, I can be a little harsh, I think, maybe. We don't save people. There's a tension that happens there but we get to be part of God work using us to declare that message to somebody else. And that's a blessing in itself. Because imagine this, as all of those Christians were scattering from Jerusalem and they kept having those conversations, what were they being reminded of? They were being reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That reminded them of the hope they have. And that kept going and going and going. The love of God that we have experienced motivates us to bear witness about Jesus. Let us continue to pray and worship our God. Lord, I pray that we would treasure you above all things, that we won't elevate gifts above the giver of gifts, that the love we have experienced from you would motivate us to bear witness about you, that our witness would be faithful and effective, and that your word would increase here in London and through this nation. And I pray that not only for us as just one church, we are one of many churches, even here in London, but for all churches that proclaim the full gospel of Jesus Christ. And amen.